Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, neuroscience, Mahamudra, Alistair Reynolds, Tantra, Zen, non-duality, awakening, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm happy to be speaking with Henry Shookman. Henry Shookman is a teacher in the Sanbo Zen lineage and is the guiding teacher of Mountain Cloud Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Henry is an award-winning poet and author of several books, including One Blade of Grass, which details his spiritual journey and is excellent, I might add. Henry struggles with traumatic experiences as a youth, combined with a spontaneous awakening experience at age 19, paved the way for him to develop a well-rounded approach to spirituality and meditation, one that includes love for self and the world as its foundation. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Talking About Zen Koans with Henry Shookman. Henry, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Uh, where are you located at this moment? I'm in my little room where I meditate and do some writing and tend to emails and so on like that in our house in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, what a beautiful place. Yeah, we're getting some beautiful stormy, rainy weather right now. It's just fantastic. Now, I used to live in Colorado, and I'd go down to Santa Fe quite a bit. And a couple times, I went to Upaya Zen Center there. But you're, you're at a different Zen Center. Yeah, that's right. I love Upaya, actually. I used to do some teaching there and a lot of sitting there earlier in my life. But I got invited in as a teacher to a place called Mountain Cloud Zen Center. It's about three miles or less from where I live and also not far from Upaya. It's an interesting place. It was built in the mid-80s. Well, it claims to be the first purpose-built zendo west of the Mississippi River. There are, of course, zendos that predate it, but they weren't purpose-built. That's what they claim. They were like farmhouses or whatever. Exactly. Conversions. It was built by a group of Philip Kaplow's students. Kaplow moved out here in the early 80s or even the late 70s, exploring whether he wanted to live here, thinking he did. And they built this beautiful adobe zendo with a few cabins and dining room and add-ons of various kinds. And then he had to go back to Rochester, his home base, up until then. And it got sort of cast adrift for quite a number of years. So from about 85, 86, when it opened its doors, right through till 2010, when I was invited in. It never quite had a sort of steady Zen teacher, Zen Sangha presence. Teachers came and went, and people would rent it for retreats and things. But since then, the last 10, 11 years, it's been a steadier thing, and it's grown quite a bit, actually. It's been great to see a community really sort of coming alive around the place. Yeah. And what tradition is it under, if any? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially the one that I'm authorized in, which is a Zen school and lineage called Sanbo Zen, which means three treasures Zen. It's actually the same one that Philip Kaplow trained in. Robert Aiken Roshi trained in it as well. It's been quite well established, I think you could say, in the West. Anyway, in the US, Mazumi Roshi 
a well-known Zen teacher who lived in the US for more than 20 years, I think. He had trained in that school as well, among others. And so our method has been disseminated here to some extent. You could say there have been successive waves of its teaching coming here. And I think it would be fair to say I'm in the latest wave, as it were. <laughs> the number of us of uh, my generation or a little older than myself who have recently been authorized over the last decade or two to teach. And I, so I do that, but I'm a bit eclectic as well. I have other things I've trained in over many years, you know. Yeah, I do the core Zen stuff, but I do more than that as well. Now, I've seen the Waking Up app. You have this whole series on koans. I've listened to some of it. There's quite a number of sessions in there. And it's really cool. I very much enjoyed listening to it. Is that representative of the main way you teach, or is it a little narrower because it's just koans? Yeah, it's both and. In a sense, it's not the normal way we work with koans, actually. (laughs) What I'm doing there was an attempt to give people a flavor of sitting with a koan who'd never done it. And I felt it was sort of, in a way, it was analogous to what would happen live and in person. You know, perhaps they're coming to a Zen center and they're hearing a weekly talk, for example, and it may well be on a koan. So they're getting some familiarity or some flavor of quite a number of different koans. So I was trying to give people a flavor of that while also having some sense of how do you actually sit with these things and what are they for anyway? And it was an exciting experiment to be invited to do. I shouldn't overemphasize how experimental it is. It's not really, but just at least doing it on an app was kind of thrilling because normally it's been so much an in-person thing. And would you say the main way that it is different is that there's no dokusan or no interviews with the teacher. It's just you're putting it out there. You're describing the koan and putting the koan out there and inviting people to investigate it and giving them some idea of how to investigate it. But that back and forth interview process with the teacher is the main missing element, or are there other big things about it that are just very different? No, that would be the main missing element. But let's say, for example, at Mountain Cloud Zen Center under pre-COVID conditions, we would have a weekly sit with a talk. And typically, at any weekly sit, there's a hardcore group of sort of diehard practitioners who are there. Then there's a broader circle that includes people who are in training, meaning they meet with a teacher, but not that often. And then there's a wider group, a larger group, actually, of folks who just want to come and hear a talk. And, you know, they may come every week or they may not come every week, but they rarely, if ever, meet with the teacher. Is it almost like they want to go to church? <laughs> I think they want their communal sitting. Yeah. And, okay. and they want their little hit of Zen Dharma. Well, let's hope something that could approximately be called wisdom from a teacher. Just get a little hit of that. And that's enough. There's different levels of engagement. So I was thinking in terms of the app, I was trying to sort of replicate for that group. You know, so they're getting this hit, they're getting a taste, and that's great. If that infuses, inspires, encourages their practice in some way, fantastic. 
I assume it's unlikely to do any great harm. <laughs> no, they're awesome. They're really cool to listen to. I enjoyed the, at least the ones I've heard quite a bit. I'm interested in the length of them. They're very short, each of these little sessions. Were you encouraged to make these little bite-sized chunks, or was that how you decided you wanted to do it? The aim was around about 10 minutes per session. Now, I don't really know, but it seems to me from my sampling around on different apps that the sort of the 10 minute meditation is the standard for novice meditators on apps. At most, this seems to be the upper limit for most. <laughs> it's interesting that you are actually using each of those little short sessions to guide people through a longer process of learning to work with koans and unpacking different koans. It's a whole series that isn't just a bunch of unconnected pieces. You've got them all lined up in a logical order, or at least an order that makes some kind of sense. Yes, I hope that's right. That was my aspiration. I can tell you that I've had incredible feedback on it. Hundreds and hundreds of people have written to say how much it's meant to them. And it's extraordinary. I mean, really, the power, these strange little phrases amongst people who previously were not familiar with them or may have heard of such a thing as a koan, but no real idea what it was. And finding that through sitting with them, the report I often hear is that one particular one kind of stuck with it and they might have listened to it repeatedly on the app or they might have not been listening to it but had it in the back of their minds through the day or in the front of their minds. Then people get unexpected shifts happen, either while listening or not while listening, while reflecting later. It can happen. So I feel really thrilled that the experiment, so to speak, seems to have been successful in that sense. It doesn't surprise me. I think the main thing that's so interesting, and it was surprising when I first started listening to the series, was just, again, the short length. Now, I've been involved in a number of app projects, some of them from the beginning, and, and some of them well-known apps. And over time, a really predictable sequence occurs with the content. When I started doing this, it was not predictable to me. But now I see that many apps tend to go in the direction of having many short sessions, but most of them unconnected to each other. So instead of people learning to meditate or learning how to work with koans, it's what I call my dog barfed on the rug meditation. Meaning there's like a special meditation for every situation that could possibly happen in life. <laughs> and it's like there seems to be no sense that you could learn a more general way to work, you know. So it's <laughs> like, oh, here's all the sessions for anxiety or breakup grief, or here's all these sessions for this other very specific thing that could happen in your life. I understand the kind of market logic of it that people just want pain relief. They don't necessarily want to learn to meditate. <laughs> and that's where it tends to go. And it's something I like on the Waking Up app in general, but any app where there's long series that are unpacking an actual way of working, it's just wonderful. That's a much more powerful direction. And so I was very, very pleased that, again, I haven't listened to the whole thing, but that 
is teaching people how to use this way of working or how to learn to sit in a koan style or however you might say mm. that rather than here's 50 individual koans, go for it. Yeah, well, I'm really chuffed to hear you say that. And I get it too. Yeah, we have to acknowledge that as meditation practice is proliferating through, broadly speaking, Western or Westernized populations, it's not surprising to me that the lowest common denominator of use would be getting most airplay, that meditation as cheap therapy, as quick way to downregulate the nervous system as an intervention when stress is too much. And I think it's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. The only, I suppose, issue could be if that occludes the deeper possibilities within meditation. And I'd say, I'm sure on the whole, it doesn't. If people stick around, they get the idea, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't have to just be a Band-Aid. Actually, you can retrain your mind, your brain, your nervous system. And not only that, but you can start a journey. You can embark on a most remarkable journey. Rather than patches to help us when our well-being is thoroughly disturbed towards cultivating a steadier well-being and then even steadier and then moving towards unconditional well-being, which is a most remarkable thing. And meditation is a premier way to access that. I think the fact that that's a possibility is becoming more and more widely recognized. And I think actually an app like Waking Up deserves credit for putting some sense of the experience of awakening, of the possibility of awakening and what that is, right at the center of the project of the app. It's really remarkable. I mean, I don't know that another one is going anywhere near that. It's right up front. The purpose of this app is to help you taste a most remarkable thing that is going to be a discovery about the sense of self you assume you've been all these decades. That's pretty radical. It is pretty radical, yeah. yeah. Right. And it's finding its audience. I find that just superb, really. Me too. And I think that the fact that it's basically curated by one person who doesn't need to use it necessarily to make money or to make an IPO happen or whatever right. has a lot to do with why the content is able to be focused in that direction rather than the relief of the moment thing. But again, I agree that a huge number of people getting some pain relief in the moment is going to lead to a large number of people engaging more deeply over time. And so even that is a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Now, there's also the other side, which is that some people report having a difficult time arising apparently out of their meditation practice. There's a big article recently on Substack about a guy who had a very, very, very difficult time at a meditation retreat, which then lasted for years afterwards. And his only recourse seemed to be to stop meditating entirely and to go on psych meds and so on. And I'm just curious, are you seeing any of this type of thing at your Zendo? It seems very rare to me, but it gets a lot of attention, of course, for a good reason. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, part of me wants to say, well, what's the big surprise? I mean, I've myself, <laughs> I think it's part of the path of growth that we would go through difficult things. I don't see how we could hope to be growing in any significant way without having difficult experiences. It seems to me that it's built in to any serious spiritual training that you would have to have difficult times. Otherwise, you can't grow. I mean, the problem is that there's been so much marketing of mindfulness, which has become commercialized and sold as a universal panacea. Yeah, if people, they've paid good money for this thing and, and they're having a lousy time, they understandably feel sort of uh, shortchanged or consternation that it's not delivering as promised, you know. Well, I mean, if it's being presented as this quick fix, then, you know, fair enough, there's a pretext for disappointment. But if actually it's being presented as what it traditionally has been, which is a path of growth, of development, of change, of transformation, you know, that our experience of being human isn't fixed. We may, broadly speaking, have some personality traits that we come in with or we develop early or whatever it is. But man, a lot can change. And the path of meditation practice is a well-trodden path of change for us humans. But nobody actually in the old days pretended it was easy. And why would it be really? If we're serious about it as a path of growth, we've got to address the stuff that's hard to face. It's about dealing with the hard stuff. But in some traditions, it's all it is. You just deal with your difficult patterns and straighten them out and release them. And that is growth. In some traditions, there's more of an emphasis on the wonderful possibilities that you can expand into and so on. And probably in most traditions, there's a balance of both. I mean, you can see if you just extract one little tiny piece of the practice that makes up the entire path of growth and say, hey, this can make you feel so good and it doesn't take long and it's cheap and it's easy. And actually, it so happens that somebody is doing a retreat for the first time or something and they hit something difficult. It doesn't feel easy. And then the retreat's over and they're still carrying this thing. Of course, that's difficult, but it also doesn't surprise me that that would happen. The solution is in the old way where you are engaged in a community that is following this practice. You've probably got some connection with a guide or more than one guide who know the territory. And, you know, you're not so much in a kind of commercial transaction. Yes. You're, you're part of something, really. And so, firstly, what happened to you would not be so remarkable or surprising. It may be to you, but not to the others. They've seen it all before. And that alone might be very reassuring. And there'll be steps to follow up with. But if you've just paid your money, done your retreat, gone home, without any follow-up, without any connection to a guide or the community, then you may feel on your own and what am I supposed to do now kind of thing. I can relate to that actually because early on in my training, I did do a session with a particular teacher where something you know, very beautiful, powerful happened to me on that retreat, you know, great existential discovery. And it, it was blissful for 
some period of time, some months after, no problem. But then it started to get kind of difficult. How am I supposed to incorporate this weird discovery in my life? And actually, it took some time. The only solution in the end was to engage with a teacher who'd been there and knew the landscape. Yeah, I think that we all expect to unearth some difficult material and have to be able to work with that. And in fact, in the traditions, there's so much material about that being the richest part of the experience that leads to some of the deepest stuff. On the other hand, some of what people are reporting are something I would classify more like psychiatric distress. Right. And again, it's not a huge number, but it makes me think that perhaps our modern way of delivering the material through books and apps and often without a guide and often without a sangha and all that is leading to some more of this kind of experience than we would otherwise see. You know, I think it makes sense that that would be the case. As numbers increase, simply, the numbers of practitioners increase, Mm. the possibilities of this kind of thing go up. And they're increasing in a way because we're moving beyond the model of sort of one-to-one training. Yep. So an app would be a prime example of that. And as you say, books too, not to mention YouTube. I know that there are measures in place already like there's, you know, Willoughby Britain's got this place, Cheetah House at Brown University, I think, that's sort of fielding casualties of mindfulness retreats. That's the premier place in the States, yeah. Right. So I'm afraid to say, but we're probably going to need an app equivalent to that. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, really, it's a hazard of the scaling it all up, isn't it, really? Yeah, what might be a minute percentage overall ends up being a significant number of people in absolute numbers as the numbers of practitioners go up. Yeah, I've been thinking about having some kind of uh, way of fielding anybody who feels they need some input and guidance, but that I'd call beyond the app. So for anybody who's having any kind of need for guidance, for coaching, that they have an easy place to go. Mindfulness beyond the app. Just go there and we'll have some sort of system for farming people out to coaches and guides. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of this sort of thing being talked about. I think some apps want to incorporate it as sort of an in-app purchase, like, okay, you need a coach to help you with this, or you want a guide, here you go. Other people, as you're saying, maybe providing click here and sign up system or something. But it does seem like that's becoming more necessary. Yeah. By the way, that can happen for the difficult reasons we've been discussing, but also for very good reasons. Because if somebody has an earth-shaking awakening, they may well feel a bit unsteady. And a helping hand could be just as important then. Absolutely. And for everything in between. I mean, people have questions, people have misunderstandings about the practice, or simply want to have a guide, right? And all of that makes perfect sense. I'm a big proponent of the one-on-one model and have seen how helpful that's been for me and for others. It's really kind of traditional, even if we're these days doing it over the phone or whatever, it's still got that intimacy and not to be too grandiose, but some of the aspects of sort of the mind-to-mind transmission, however we might say that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. In fact, in Zen, they say 
You know this notion of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. The three jewels. Yes, Triratna, I guess. Sanbo in Japanese. Mm. So the second one, the Dharma, is framed as being primarily of two kinds. I mean, perhaps there are more, but often it's spoken of this way. One kind is kind of generic. That would be listening to talks and reading books and that sort of thing. And then there's a more personal kind where the quote-unquote physician of the Dharma needs to address your particular issues. So this is sort of analogous to health and with having sort of general medicine and medical approaches and health approaches that are good for everybody, but everybody individually needs a tailored approach as well. Yeah, I'm reminded of my friend Daniel Ingram, who calls that Dharma diagnosis. <laughs> He's an MD by trade, and it's definitely interesting and beautiful part of working with folks. Now, when someone takes up the koan path, is that the kind of thing where a long, long commitment is the real way to actually get what this is trying to teach you? Or is even just engagement with Mu, like a simple koan and one retreat, is that also helpful? I mean, of course it's helpful a little bit, but is koan study something that really gives you its best results with this very long-term engagement? <laughs> yeah, that's a nice question. I mean, sort of somewhat analogously to the way I did earlier about any Zen center is going to have these, I think any meditation center is going to have these sort of concentric circles of engagement. You know, some real diehards, sort of hardcore center who are really in there for the long haul and for, you know, the deep possibilities and a wider group who are kind of, you know, doing some of it, but they may also do other practices and they sort of, you know, a little bit eclectic and moving in and out some who just want to hit now and then. I think it's the same with koan training. There are some people who they're in for a couple of years and it really helps them and and then they're gone. And there are others who just like, wow, this is my way. And they, they just dig right in. And, you know, others that I may not even know what they're getting from hearing about koans, but they still come to listen now and then, you know. So... I would say, you know, probably like with other deep forms of practice, yeah, if you want the biggest possibilities of it, it's likely to be a longish engagement. And the whole, the entire map would, would look like somebody sitting with one of the early koans, such as Mu, could be Who Am I or What Is This, and a couple of others as well. And then once they have some kind of breakthrough experience that's clear enough, and by the way, it has to be a pretty strong experience to be clear enough to really start working with a teacher on the koans. But if that happens, then they can get into the path of training with a teacher. You know, if they really want to keep going all the way, so to speak, yeah, it's a long time. In the traditional path, we gradually work our way through several classic collections of koans. So it's, it's quite a lot of koans, you know, and it takes a while. But, you know, for some, it's the journey of a lifetime. It can be, you know, really, really very profound in its effects, really living in quite a new way. Something that I found interesting in your book, One Blade of Grass, in talking about your own koan training, you mentioned that the koans are grouped and each 
group and even each individual koan is working on certain aspects or working on the individual in a certain way or teaching a certain thing. So do you feel that when someone has gone through all these different koans, they have worked through, for example, quite a bit of not only dharma type material, but psychological material? Are all these koans like doing the clean up and grow up part of spirituality also? Mm -hmm. And helping us with our emotional difficulties and our childhood difficulties and all that? Or is it really all affecting us on another plane or intentionally just about prajna and just the wisdom insight aspects? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm not necessarily the best example because <laughs> I needed to do quite a bit of therapy and work and I'm sure I will do again, having had quite a bit of trauma in my childhood. So I believe in multiple modalities as needed. And I wouldn't say that all people can be utterly awakened and cleaned up and learn to grow up just through current training. I'm sure some people that would be true of. Just bearing in mind that if we're going through a long koan training, we're doing a lot of sitting. You can't do it without extensive sitting and extensive retreats. And there will be plenty of time for shadow material to surface. Now, whether the sitting is enough and whether the working with the koans is enough to really process that or whether it's actually we're going to need some of us therapy as well of, of whatever stripe, I don't know for sure. When I look at my own teachers in the Zen world, they seem remarkably grown up and cleaned up as well as awakened. In fact, even in Zen, really, there's this idea that your awakening should get deep enough that you start to forget about it. They're really after this ideal of somebody who's completely forgotten awakening and is just leading a normal life. That's the long-range aspiration. And, you know, there are notable examples in the Zen tradition of people who are just leading these very, very free, spontaneous, natural lives of kindness and compassion and playfulness. You know, if they were asked where they awakened, they'd not have a clue what they were being asked kind of thing. And this situation that we seem to be in in the West with a lot of interest in awakening and a lot of concern with awakening and dialogue about it and talking about it, I mean, it's a really great thing. Because, man, it wasn't really on the cards. I don't know, 100 years ago, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, it was more of a rarity, even as a notion, let alone actually being experienced by people. So that's fantastic. It's infiltrated our culture that these remarkable possibilities for humans are known about now. What a fantastic thing. But on the other hand, we may be culturally in a stage where we're learning to mature to the point where we can get it really thoroughly so that we can start forgetting about it kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but so putting that to one side i don't quite know to be honest michael what kind of personality type it would be appropriate to only do koan training might be enough to really clean up and grow up as he put it as well as waking up i suspect there'd be some temperaments and personal histories for whom that is quite plausible. And I think there'd be others where, you know, some therapeutic intervention might also be called for other practices too, perhaps. 
Yeah, thank you for that. I'm curious if you are doing any innovation in koan practice. I see some Japanese teachers making modern koans. How do you stop the shinkansen? Things like that. (laughs) I'm curious if you're doing any innovation either in koan practice or just in your teaching in general. In the koan realm, I'm not at all. How do you stop the shinkansen? That's very close to traditional koan. How do you stop the boat sailing on the sea? That's almost more of a translation than an innovation, I would feel, if you see what I mean. But there are more radical experiments being done with koans that don't actually make sense to me, which I don't need to go into. Now, in terms of new koans, there's so many old ones. My God, we don't need any more. (laughs) The train is long enough as it is. But I think there's an incredible value sort of putting ourselves under the the eaves of this ancient tradition, putting ourselves in contact with these touchstones of profound human revelation and growth that are thousands of years old. I don't think there's anything sort of mystical and sacred about it. I just think there's something really cool about feeling connected with thousands of years of practice in a most direct way. I mean, it really astonishes me in a certain sense, just how contemporary koans are. You don't have to translate them or change them. It's astounding how this Zen teaching has expressed itself and passed it on. You know, like one koan is like this master is asked, you know, what's the essence of Buddhism? What's the essence of awakening? What's the essence of who I truly am? And whatever big questions you want to fold into that. And the master answers, what's the price of rice in Luling? That's his response to the question. What's the heart of awakened reality? What is the price of rice in Tokyo? I mean, how amazing. Yeah. No reference to grand states of mind, to levels of consciousness, to God knows what, or to just what's the price of rice? How much does gas cost in Albuquerque right now? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. But it's for real. It's amazing to me. And the Coens are full of examples like this, just ordinary life showing up. The wonder, the greatest reality of the ultimate awakening to nothing at all or everything or whatever it is, you know, how do the Coens present it? It's always like normal things. They don't like grandiose language. They just talk about you know a dog a flower a cat a hedge a door a gate normal stuff cleaning the bowls all in the fabric of our ordinary life you know and the koans sort of keep bringing us back to that i think that's just fantastic so that's all by way of why innovate you know kind of thing with the koans so however on the other hand i actually personally teaching broader aspects of meditation these days, like a buttress or a broader foundation for people's practice. So first of all, for people who aren't interested in koans, they can start getting into, you know, things like absorption states with a bit more accurate training and learning, you know, what samadhi is a bit more deeply. And I really think it's important to open up to different levels and styles of support and sort of recognizing them in our sitting and in our path of growth I think it's just salutary and in some way to 
counter the tendency we're seeing, I seem to be picking up anyway, of people thinking of meditation as simply a solitary undertaking that's analogous to going to the gym and not recognizing the role of community and of support in that path of growth. Honestly, I think the traditional Zen training is fantastic, but is it broad enough for those of us who need or would benefit from a rather wider basis of practice with mindfulness than just breath awareness? It helps to at least have some familiarity with the four foundations of mindfulness, not just breath, but more of the body, and not just body, but mind states and emotions and thoughts. Exactly. And having a little bit of basic dharma, four noble truths, the three marks, five hindrances, knowing these kinds of early Buddhist tools is actually invaluable. So I'm teaching these things as well these days. In fact, I've got a new program called Original Love, which sees sort of four zones of growth that meditation is pertinent to, one of them being awakening, and the other three being less sort of rarefied and more about kind of cleaning up and growing up, I would say, in a sense. Can you tell me more about what you're doing with the original love? Yeah. Initially, it's about essentially getting grounded in the four foundations of mindfulness, sinking our roots down into them, especially body, but more as well, and knowing some preliminary basic ways of categorizing experience from early Buddhist teachings. Then opening up to different flavors of support, recognizing it, then getting into flow states, absorption states. And so we're teaching this through retreats and through courses. It's quite a new venture, actually, because we haven't done courses before <laughs> at Mountain Cloud. I mean, in a sense, we've been doing one long course, but now we're actually doing like this is an eight-week course, a four-week course, six-month course, and so on. We're starting to develop those. Kind of exciting, actually. That is exciting. And dividing up training into these individual courses matches the way we're used to learning more closely. Yes, correct. And I think there's some wisdom in that, doing slightly more intensive periods, and then we back off a bit and absorb and integrate and then come back in. I think it's a good way of learning, actually. And is there already original love material available? Are these courses out already, any of them? <laughs> well, our first one is actually just starting on this coming Monday. And that's a three-week one. And then we've got a retreat mid-August. And there's quite a bit on our YouTube. And there's a certain amount on our website of preliminary material. There's a book in the pipeline. So there's quite a lot of material that I personally created. And a certain amount of that is currently available. And there's going to be a whole lot more. That's really interesting, Henry. Good luck with that. And thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's a real honor to be with you. Even though we may have trained in overlapping and different traditions, you just feel so much common ground. People who have devoted a lot of years to meditation. It's very palpable. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. 
I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>